Jesus came to earth to die. Why? The motivating factor for Jesus to come to earth and die was that there is hell. Or else if hell wasn't there, why would he have to die? And so if you take away hell, if you deny hell, if you don't want to accept the doctrine of hell, then you're really not a Christian because then you've denied the cross and the power of the cross and just what Jesus laid his life down for. Evidence to Christians that hell exists is the fact that Jesus was nailed to a cross. Or why else would he be nailed to a cross? Why else would God's son have to die? A little child can put that to that correlation. Hell is that bad, Jesus had to come to die. Okay, so it's milk of the word. It's basic Christianity, fundamental Christianity. That if you really want to embrace the fullness of the gospel, hell must be a foundational message that you understand. We don't have to fall in line and become a Laodicean Christian. We can become a a Philadelphian Christian if we choose to. Amen? We can choose to devote ourselves to Christ in such a way that we will shine before men. We can choose to devote ourselves to Christ so much that Jesus will decide to empower you to do incredible exploits for his name. You can even... If you choose and live for him with all your might, you can walk as Paul walked or Peter or John and you can walk as as closely as they did to Jesus Christ. The scriptures that I'm using are very, very powerful today. So get ready for some really hard-hitting scripture. But first, I just want to look at 1 Timothy 4.16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Many of you have heard me use this scripture before. Watch your life. Watch the way you live. So in the sense of holiness, how you live, are you representing Christ properly? And watch your doctrine, the the things you believe the scriptures say, what you think the scriptures say. Watch... Watch that and be very careful that you believe the truth, that you're not under a false teaching or a a lie of some kind. Now, and this is the exact reason why I'm doing a complete survey of the New Testament, looking at every scripture pertaining to salvation and to holiness. And you'll find they always are interlinked. Nearly every time salvation is mentioned, holiness is mentioned, or at least close by. And you're going to see this even more clearly than the first sermon. Who remembers my first sermon from a couple of weeks ago? hope you do. It'll go online soon so you can watch it again. Um, but this sermon today, we're going into some really powerful, powerful scriptures. So watch your life and doctrine closely. And then it says something that you really got to take to heart. Persevere in them. Persevere, persevere in, in living the right life and persevere in the things you believe Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So if I persevere in this, I'll save myself and I'll save those that hear. So if I persevere in correct doctrine and teaching correct doctrine, then you guys will get saved, I'll get saved. But if I don't, if I teach false doctrine, I can lose my salvation and so can you guys as a result because that's what the Scriptures 
are referring to, isn't it? Isn't that what the scriptures just said? Persevere in them and then you will save. It's talking about salvation. That is a salvation scripture. It, you will save yourself and your hearers if you persevere in correct doctrine and in holiness. Watching your life. Amen? Okay, so that's a salvational scripture right in that. Let's go to 2 Peter and stay in 2 Peter today. We will slip over to Jude just quickly and there's one scripture from Jude that I want to survey and then we come back to Peter and John. We're going to do one John if we get time. So 2 Peter and we're going to go from uh, chapter 1 from verse 2. And it says this, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything. Whose divine power? The divine power of God, of, of Christ, has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So everything we need to live a holy life, to live a godly life, has been given us through the divine power of Jesus Christ. Through our knowledge, through our knowledge of him. And what knowledge is that? It's the knowledge of the person that he was and is. Was on earth as he walked on earth and the person that he is in heaven today. There's interesting um, scriptures about Jesus Christ and what his current ministry is. Who knows from scripture what his current ministry is? What one of his most powerful ministries in heaven is? Interceding for the saints. Who knows that scriptures say that? That he lives to intercede for the saints. So he's up there praying for you. So if you want a prayer partner, you've got a good one. <laughs> God is praying for you. All right? And who knows we need prayer to get through this life? Who knows that each of you praying for me and, and me praying for you and each other and that we all pray for each other, we should all actually write in a book the names of everyone in the church. Write them all down in a book and try to make it a daily habit to pray for each other. Because that's the way churches get powerful, but it's also the way churches keep from falling into sin and transgression and falling into factions and divisions, things that destroy churches. So 2 Peter 1, 2, 11, and, it's, and it says, so, called us by his, sorry, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, this is verse 3, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these... He has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, through those promises, you may participate in the divine nature. See, we live on earth in a human body and isn't there a prevailing teaching that you, you can't expect to overcome sin in this life? Is there a teaching in the church? Has the church nearly take a, taken a defeated attitude in relation to the sin nature that you can't possibly expect someone to be sinless in this life. Oh, okay, all right. Well, then why try? You know. So they're taking a back seat in relation to that sort of stuff. They, there's this thing that if, if you teach holiness, you're teaching perfectionism. Has anyone heard that? Yeah, and what perfectionism is, is that I'm trying to teach everyone that they must be absolutely perfect, right? Well, in the way that I think in relation to that sort of a doctrine... I, when I'm teaching music and I teach someone to play a piece, 
would it be right of me to not try to help them to make it as perfect as possible? Right? But do you know what? Nearly every musician you'll ever ask about their performances of a certain piece, especially like concert pianists playing these incredible pieces by Rachmaninoff and, and Chopin and so on, they will never come off and say they were perfect. They will know in themselves that there was some imperfection. But that didn't stop them striving to be as perfect and to the highest possible level of perfection they could possibly attain to. Now that's what Christ is calling us. He's wanting us to strive for perfection. Because if you strive for, per for perfection, you're going to get a lot better than if you're not striving perfection for perfection. It's hard to say that. You know what I'm saying? So perfectionism, like saying, you know, it, it's like you're condemned unless you're perfect. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about lifting the quality of the saints, lifting my quality, being a, a more holy person, being more like Christ. And you're going to see some scriptures are going to go call us to this continuously through this book and through 1 John. Make every... Oh, sorry, I'll go back to verse 4. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. You have been given a divine nature. Who knows, at the moment you've accepted Jesus Christ into your life, you receive the Holy Spirit and you become a new creature. You're born again. And you are now participating in the divine nature. Now, how dare we in a divine nature, allow ourselves to slip back into chronic sin. We must be hard on ourselves. We must beat our bodies and make them a slave so that after we've preached to others, we will not be disqualified for the prize. That's what Paul's attitude was. I beat my body. I make it a slave. He got his body, he taught his flesh nature to submit to the Spirit of God. Precious promises so that through them you might participate in the divine nature and what? Escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You participate in the divine nature to escape the corruption of the world and what's that? Caused by evil desires. So when you sense an evil desire rising in your heart, you must resist it. You must resist it. You must push it away. Don't let it get a hold of you. Don't let it take you down a road that you know is going to lead you away from Christ. Be strong against that, that, that uh, desire that rises in us. For this very reason, we are told as Christians walking in the divine nature to make every effort to add to your faith goodness. So we've got to be good. You know, we can't be bad, we've got to be good. And to goodness, knowledge, right? Knowledge in, in many forms, but knowledge that will help us to live a good life. And to knowledge, self-control. Once you have knowledge, perfect the art of self-control, resisting those things that are, are, are going to pull you. You know, things that used to pull you in, into sin, You've now got to have self-control and resist it with all your heart. Self-control. And to self-control perseverance. Who knows? You've got to persevere in this. You don't just do it for a week and then let go of it for a month and then do it for another week and then let go of it for two months and then blame the devil. 
You know what I mean? We've got to resist it and persevere. Persevere. It's, it's, the, the prize goes to those that run the race, that finish the race. Persevere. And to, and to perseverance, godliness, of course, we must be godly. And to godliness, brotherly kindness, kind to each other, kind to the brothers. And to brotherly kindness, love. We've got to have a love that just pours out of us. We've got to love each other and reach out to each other with all our hearts. You know, some people will think, how can you preach on hell and still love? You know, I was told just last week that someone doesn't come to this church because we preach on hell. We preach what Scripture says about hell. And the, he couldn't handle it. He didn't want to hear it. He couldn't handle hearing about hell. And because of that, even though he liked us, he won't come to church because he's not going to face Scripture and what Scripture has to say about hell. And I, I, I just think, don't call yourself a Christian if you're going to deny a, a, a a very important doctrine of Scripture. Jesus came to earth to die. Why? The motivating factor for Jesus to come to earth and die was that there is hell. Or else if hell wasn't there, why would he have to die? And so if you take away hell, if you deny hell, if you don't want to accept the doctrine of hell, then you're really not a Christian because then you've denied the cross and the power of the cross and just what Jesus laid his life down for. Evidence to Christians that hell exists is the fact that Jesus was nailed to a cross. Doesn't that make sense? Right? Or why else would he be nailed to a cross? Why else would God's son have to die? I think that, I, I, I believe that if you really want to embrace the fullness of the gospel, hell must be a foundational message that you understand hell must be foundational hell, hell is not for the advanced christian hell is for the christian that is getting saved hell is to be understood by baby christians in a sense it's the milk of the word it's like well what do you think why did jesus die on the cross and a little child three years old because of hell you know a little child can put that to that correlation. Hell is that bad. Jesus had to come to die. Okay, so it's milk of the word. It's basic Christianity, fundamental Christianity. And it should be, you know, the message that we all understand and live by. Amen? Even though hell is a terrible, terrible doctrine. Self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities... In increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective. You've got to increase in those qualities. You've got to continue to develop those qualities, those Christian characteristics in you, those, those traits that must continue. You must work over them. You must develop them in your life. You must focus on making sure that they come out of you in the way you live. Increasing measure. If, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, 
actually, I'm just going to stop on that. But if anyone does not have them, if anyone does not have these qualities, if anyone does not develop in these qualities, they are nearsighted and blind. And they have forgotten that they have been cleansed. Christians today forget that when they accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, they were cleansed from their sin. And they now teach that grace is so, so uh, yeah, um, ever-present, I suppose, that you can continue to sin and you're still going to be saved. You continue to live the old life. You don't have to change. And if anyone comes and teaches you have to change, uh, are considered legalistic. And I'm, I'm going down this path a lot. I'm really hitting it home here. And really because I also, because I want it to come on the internet when I get time to get all my videos online, which I'm falling behind in. But these videos have got to get out into the world. And this, this survey of the New Testament has got to get out there so that people can start watching it and be corrected in this false teaching that is pervading the church and causing the church to be the most watered-down, powerless church in the history of the church. You know, I, um, I don't know whether I believe fully in the, in the seven churches symbolizing the seven different periods of church history, but I do know that we represent the church of Laodicea. You know, we are everything they talk about as the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, we, we are a spitting image of that. You know, that can't be denied. But it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to fall in line and become a Laodicean Christian. We can become a, a Philadelphian Christian if we choose to. Amen? We can choose to devote ourselves to Christ in such a way that we will shine before men. That We can choose to devote ourselves to Christ so much that Jesus will decide to empower you to do incredible exploits for his name. And Get this, you can even, if you choose and live for him with all your might, you can walk as Paul walked or Peter or John and you can walk as, as closely as they did to Jesus Christ. And you know what? How many men and women of the past have taken that on and have gone for that? And I know some men I've been reading about that have just, just mind-blowing how close they walked with Jesus and how powerfully they impacted the people of the world, you know, with, with the message of the gospel. And if it wasn't for them, Christianity wouldn't be like it is today. Oh, we can't blame them for the Laodicean part, but we wouldn't have a church like it is today in the sense of um, it would be, wouldn't be as far-reaching and has spread as, as, as effectively. So therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. What's that mean? Be eager to make sure, because you were called. Many are called, but few are chosen. So it says, be all the more eager to make your calling and your election, that you're elected. Yes, you're saved. Be more eager to make sure that you're saved. Remember what I said last week? I said that if you, um, it won't take you more than probably five seconds of death and, and facing before Jesus Christ on judgment. And it will take about five to ten seconds before you realize, I wish I could live my life over. You will go, I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back and start my life again and live completely and totally sold out to Jesus Christ in every single thing that I do. My every waking breath would be for Jesus if I could just go back. And it would take you about ten, five, ten seconds 
of seeing Jesus Christ and realizing he's the truth and at a level that you never realized here, you'd want to go back and start again and you want to do it all again and you'd want to do it better and better and better than you ever possibly did it before. And so my point is, is why don't we preach about that? Why don't I say these things so that you can get the bug to go back and say, I'm going to go for God with all my heart. I don't know something, look it up, study it, understand it. You're feeling down, get on your knees and start praying. You know, you need a breakthrough, fast, pray, seek the face of God. Amen. So, therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, and what are those things? Um, adding to your faith, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and so on. If you do these things, you will never fall fall, you'll never fall from grace. You'll never fall from being saved and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Who wants to receive that rich welcome? Who wants to, when you pass on from this life, that you see Jesus at the gate saying, come in brother, I love you, come in here. And a big hug and Abraham comes up and hugs you and all the saints, you know. Wouldn't that be just awesome? Would that be awesome? Then make your calling and election sure. Make sure you're sure in that. Make sure that you don't let the sin nature take over. Don't let yourself get pulled into the things of the world. Amen? All right, that's one scripture. Let's go to one more. 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3. 2 Peter 1 to 3, and it says, But there were also false prophets among the people. Now, the reason I'm bringing these, these current script, this scripture up is because it gives us an insight into the kinds of ministers that are around today. And it helps us to see some things about what they're teaching um, that will really wake us up. And just so you get a bit of history into where I came from, from as a Christian, I came out of churches where 90% of what they taught was really good stuff, but there was a 10% um, a poison in what they taught. And as a result, non-transformation in everybody in the church. No one was getting transformed. The gifts of the Spirit, even though everyone pretended to have them, there was no power. Having a form of godliness but denying the power. There was no power in all of that falling over and laughing and everything else that was going on because the, the result was they couldn't go out and save a single soul. They couldn't speak and impact someone for Jesus Christ, which is the reason we have the power, isn't it? So we can fulfill the Great Commission, so we can go out and make disciples of nations. That's what the power is for. It's not so we can roll around on the floor and have a good time in church. Not that I think that's a good time. That's not what the power is for. It's not to make you cackle like a witch or a chicken. Because some of them, like you have to admit, some of the women, that when they did it, you'd, you would have experienced it. It sounded like witches cackling at the front of the church. And I'm going, like, what's going on up there? You know? And um, that's not what it's for. It's not so you can laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. It's not for... That's, 
it's the power is to be serious and sober-minded. Do you know how many scriptures talk about sober-minded? Be sober-minded, and then they come along and say, drunk on the Holy Spirit. Really? When P Peter was accused and the disciples were accused of being drunk on the Holy Spirit, he rebuked them. He said, how dare you? Probably didn't say that. I would have said that. He said, it's only 9 a.m. We are not drunk as you suppose. And the only reason they were thinking that was because there's these Hebrews speaking in these tongues that they weren't familiar with, but there was people familiar with them and they could understand them and they were giving glory to God because these Hebrews know their language. And they just thought they were drunk. It's not because they were rolling around on the ground laughing. Could you imagine the 12 disciples getting baptized on the day and rolling around and laughing and carrying on like pork chops and everyone looking at them like, what is going on here? Who could take them seriously? Who could take them seriously in a public setting? So the Drunk on the Holy Spirit movement came along and deceived a multitude of Christians. And you know what? There's still a, residu a, a, a residue of that left in Adelaide. I remember a few, a few years ago I went into a church and they were doing that. And I'm like, oh man, not again. And it was the same people from the church we used to go to. They had found this church and they were still doing it. And then there was, but there was other ones that obviously came from other churches and suddenly this one church was open to it. So the whole church was into it. And I couldn't even get to the end of the sermon. I had to leave. It was so repelling, so sickening. And I could just imagine what an, if an unbeliever walked in there, what is going on here? And that was the time when there was a, I was told that in that very church, a man stood up and said, if I had to choose between tongues, speaking in tongues, and the tongues of angels, not the languages of men, not the one on Pentecost, not that tongues, because that was the languages of men. He said, if I have to choose between the tongues of angels, which is a, a, a gift that some people get to edify their prayer life, and this book, I'd choose tongues. And when he heard that, he got up and walked out. After he watched the pastor, and the pastor did not rebuke him, he just said, Amen, brother. So they're putting tongues, tongues of tongues. If you look at the, the gifts, you've got the gifts of the apostle, the prophet, and, and so on, teachers down the line, and tongues is the least of the gifts. They've now turned that on its head. Tongues is at the top of the list, even trumping the word of God in their minds. They're lost. They're lost sheep. They're lost sheep. I'm saying this so you can be aware because it happens out there and I'm sure some of you might have been involved in those sort of things. Tongues is the least of the gifts. Least, but it's for edification. And it's great if you can get it. But you don't speak out loud, outspokenly in a church unless there's an interpreter present. That's what the scriptures say. It says you've got to keep order in the church. It must be orderly. Because if someone comes in who doesn't know Jesus and people are all speaking in tongues, they'll think you're crazy and they'll walk out and they'll, they won't want a bar of you. But if someone comes in when everyone's prophesying with audible language that people can understand, they'll give glory to God. That's what the scriptures say. But the church seems to ignore direct commands of Paul in, the, in, in relation to church conduct and the orderly church conduct and as a result we're getting weakened and more and more weakened because we're not nothing like the original but it's easy to correct if you just follow the scriptures amen so two uh, two peter two one to three and it says but there will also 
there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. How many Christians today deny that Jesus Christ is God? Do you know how many? It's a huge movement. It's growing all the time, not just in Jehovah Witness circles and Seventh-day Adventists, not Seventh-day sorry, they do believe, um, and uh, Christadelphian circles and Mormons. They believe he's one of many gods. And they even believe that you can ascend to become a god just like Jesus Christ. The New Age teach that you can gain a Christ consciousness and you can become like an ascended master. As you go through life, you ascend up to Christ consciousness. But it's not Jesus Christ, the one and only God, in the form of, in, as a part of the Trinity of God. Does that make sense? And so you get these, these religions that teach this. So they're denying, and they're only recent, uh, come about recently in the 19th century, was when Jehovah Witnesses and, and uh, Mormons, and I can't remember the time, can you remember uh, Christadelphians? Probably around that time. Seventh-day Adventists came out at the same time. Seventh-day Adventists began with two false prophecies about a return of Christ. And then they said, oh, he did come spiritually. The scriptures say he'll become, come physically, so they lied. They kept their followers. But um, So what we have is these people that are introduced destructive heresies and even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. So when the judgment comes, swift destruction upon these guys. Charles Taze Russell, who is the founder of Jehovah Witnesses, swift destruction on him because he deceived masses of people into believing that Jesus is not God. And then if you go through the teachings of Jehovah Witnesses, it's corrupt. It's corrupt to no end. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Now remember, guys, Peter is talking about a future time. Many will follow their shameful ways and bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories that they've made up. Now you can think of a lot of people you might not think, you know, the the stories of miracle healings and all that sort of stuff. If you have any doubts, um, you know, with these big, big, giant ministries that are making millions and millions of dollars a year, They could be stories that were made up. We don't know. We can't accuse any of them of being liars, but the Bible says that they will make lots of money by spreading stories, spreading lies. Their condemnation has has been hanging over them, has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Let's go forward to Jude. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write to urge you to contend for the faith. Contend for it. Fight for it. Struggle. I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. But did you catch that? They changed the grace of God into a license for immorality. That grace is a coverall. You're saved no matter what. You can't lose your salvation 
even if you return back to your former ways, you won't lose your salvation. I remember a Paul Washer's sermon. He, he spoke about a, a certain uh, man who had died and he went to the funeral and the minister got up. And this man was known. Um, maybe Paul didn't go. He heard about the story. I don't know if he was at that man's funeral. But this man got up, uh, uh, the minister, and said about this certain man, 40 years ago, I, he came forward on an altar call and gave his heart to Jesus Christ, and I thank God he's in the kingdom of heaven now. Yet this man had the reputation of being the most sinful man in the whole town. But the minister so believed that that one confession made 40 years before saved him, that even despite the fact that he led the next 40 years doing terrible, terrible, sinful things, he was saved. Because the grace of God is that far-reaching. That's what Jude talks about here. It says they are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality. If that's true, then why is all these exhortations to live holy lives? Why are we told, even with warnings, that if we don't live godly lives, we won't be received into the kingdom of heaven? And can you say that I'm making that up or does the scripture say that? Did I make that up or does the scripture say that? Scriptures say it. If the scriptures didn't say it, I wouldn't preach it. If the scripture says grace is a you know, cover all, then I wouldn't bother preaching any of this. I'd say, well, let's go to the pub. Let's hold church services in the pub. Let's get drunk. You know, bring your drugs along. You know, let's go for it. Right? Well, no, that's the life I did live. <laughs> now you know. That's the life I did live, right? And now I have to cut that old life off. I've got to cut it off and I've got to be vicious with it. I've got to resist it and I've got to push it away and I'm not, I've got to not let myself fall into that anymore. Grace does not give you freedom to sin. As I've always said, when you, you, when you sin, you've stepped out from grace. You're no longer under grace. As, as the scriptures pertain, you know, we are free from sin. We're not free to sin. We're free from it. So we've got to discipline ourselves. We've got to contend for the faith that was entrusted to us. These men, these are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. And though you already know all this, and though you already know all this, um, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt but later destroyed those who did not believe. Now, why did he say that? Even though you know all this, I want to remind you, when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, many of them got destroyed. To the point where at one point, the ground opened up and took about 20,000 of them or something down in there and straight into the pit, boom, straight to hell, closed up. No, no waiting around, to hell with them. Bang, down they went. Now, why did he add that? If grace is a free-for-all, if you can't lose your salvation, he's reminding us that, you know, Israel, they came out of Egypt. They were Israelites. 
It's the equivalent. He's saying this to Christians. They were Christian in a sense. They came out, but many of them rebelled in the desert. They rebelled to the point where God just said, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to destroy them. And Moses pleaded with God, please don't destroy them. He says, no, no, don't worry. I'll, I'll raise up a new people out of, out of you like he did with Abraham. And Moses said, no, 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 no. Then they'll talk about it, you know, that God couldn't deliver his people out of Egypt and put them into their promised land. So God backed off. Not that God didn't know that was going to happen. He programmed Moses to be like that, you know, as a man of compassion. Like it wasn't me. God said, I'm, I'm done with them as well. God, do it. <laughs> Get rid of them. You know, how many of us would have the level of compassion of Moses? How many of us would love even though everyone, like Moses, and at that time, everyone was rebelling and, and talking bad against Moses and was confronting Moses and was questioning his leadership. You could imagine the pressure that would have, been, would have been on Moses. And even under all that pressure, when God said, Moses, I want to destroy him, Moses pleaded, don't. That's, that's awesome. That's how we should love. That's how we should love at that level. So he reminds the Christians, Jude is telling the Christians, he's saying, just remember that. That just because you've accepted Jesus and you've claimed to be a Christian, now you're walking in Christ. Don't assume that you can do anything you want. But there are things that you can't do anymore. You've got to resist the sin nature. Amen? Or else you can be destroyed just like many of the Israelites were destroyed. And then 2 Peter, go back to 2 Peter again. 2 Peter 2 verse 17. And it says, these men are springs without water. Have you ever sat under a ministry, and I hope it's not this one, ever sat under a ministry where you just don't get fed, you don't get a drink? I've sat under teaching, and I come into church, and I teach, and at the end of it, I'm like, what, what was that? Gee, that was a waste of time. I would have been better staying home and watching TV. Would have learnt more from watching Seinfeld. You know, but the, these mists are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. Guys, this is, this is why I don't preach their doctrines. <laughs> I don't want to be placed in the blackest, darkest parts of the abyss. I would rather have this many people in church and preach the truth than have 10,000 people in my church and preach a lie. Or preach a subtle lie. Because I'm not saying it's all lie. Because there's truth in it. That's why you can recognize it. Oh, he's preaching the scriptures. <laughs> but then there's these slight deviations that if you're not a Berean, if you're not studying the word, if you're not going through it like a surveying the scriptures, you miss it. You don't even see it. And if you're a new Christian, you're even in more jeopardy because then you just accept what your pastor teaches and it's not until you've been a Christian for another 10 years that you finally realize, you know what, I don't think it says that. And that's where I came. You know, I, I came out of it like, I started reading the scriptures and going, hang on, man. This ain't in here. This teaching, actually there's more teachings threatening me and warning me that I could lose my salvation than, than tells me you've got it and you can never lose it. Actually, there's not one that says you can never lose it. If there was, it would be all through. So 2 Peter 17, 2, 2 verse 17, and it says, 
For they mouth empty, boastful words. This is verse 18. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the sinful nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. So the new converts just coming out, just coming out of the world, they entice them. They promise them freedom. They promise that you'll be free indeed if you follow my teaching. While they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped corruption of the world by knowing our Lord Jesus, uh, sorry, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then they're again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Poor. Now, do you catch that? If you come out, if you know Jesus Christ and you're saved, it says, I'll read it again, if they have escaped the corruption of the world, if you've escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and then again entangled in it, you get caught back up in the world Grace doesn't cover here. It says it here. It says if you get entangled in it and overcome, these people are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Worse off. A deeper part of hell is for them, in a sense. Because how can it be worse off than hell? Well, the deepest, blackest part of hell. If, sorry, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred commandment that was passed on to them. It would have been better not to have known Jesus Christ. How can this be here and it's not getting preached? I think this is probably the least read scripture in the Bible. And you know how Satan works people that are under that teaching? They skip that in a sense of they read it but you know you can read something and not understand what you're reading and if it doesn't line up with your doctrine you go no that can't be saying that I must have something wrong but it says it they're worse off than they were at the beginning it would have been better to not have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred commandment that was passed on to them of them these proverbs are true a dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. So you, you get saved and you, you for Jesus for a time and then you return back to the world. You're worse off than you were before you got saved. It would have been better not to have got saved. It would have been better for you in eternity to not have come into a church and get saved than if you get into a church and get saved and turn your back on Jesus Christ in the sense of through living a licentious life, a sinful life, a debauched life. It's going to be a terrible, terrible thing for that person if they don't repent. But again, here's the good news. Repentance. Repentance. And it doesn't just mean saying, sorry to God, I'll try not to do that again. It's, no, I no longer will live like that. I'm going to live like this. Jesus is the road. I'm going to take that road. The world and its wide road and anything goes, get off it. 
live according to the narrow parameters of the gospel. The narrow parameters. And it's, it's narrow, but I tell you what, you live according to it, you live the best life. Doesn't mean you don't have trouble and hardship. Jesus says, if they hate me, they'll hate you also. But if you live according to those narrow parameters, God will make sure that you're blessed beyond imagination, even in the worst situations. You know, Paul and Silas were locked up in prison. And they were singing hymns at two in the morning and they were in shackles, you know, chained up to a wall, probably just been beaten. They're singing hymns at two in the morning. What gave them that energy? Why weren't they just sobbing and crying, you know, due to the pain of what they were going through? They were singing hymns and the gates of that prison just unlocked and it just the whole place, all the, all the doors opened up. Do you remember the story? What enabled them to be so joyful in such a terrible thing? It was the power of the Holy Spirit in them. It was the knowledge of salvation. It was knowing every single thing I just received up my back is going to be credited to me in the kingdom of heaven. When I get there, Jesus is going to hug hug Paul even tighter because of what he went through for him. You didn't deny me. You received the worst punishments you could possibly imagine. And you stood your ground and resisted the sin nature. You lived for me. You threw everything in yourself to, to me and gave yourself, you gave yourself completely over to me. Of course, he's got the best part of heaven. Just as you can get the deepest, darkest part of hell, you can get the best part of heaven also. Because <laughs> who knows? If you believe in Jesus Christ, when you die and you've repented of all sin and you're in, a, in that place, you're going to go to heaven. But who knows that not everyone lives for Christ as well as others. Some live for Christ in a magnificent, just superlative way, and others don't live quite as good, but they still get to heaven. I'll I tell you what, just getting to heaven is all. I, I, want, I want to do the best I can for Jesus Christ, but man, I'll be so glad to step foot into heaven. Regardless of reward, I just can't wait to just step foot into that place and go, whew, I'm, I'm here. Whew, eternity in front of me now. Praise God. You know what I mean? You know, you're not cooking. You're not cooking. You're in heaven. And the colors are richer and the, the water is clearer and more beautiful to drink it's the most beautiful thing you could possibly drink everything is better everything is better in heaven and then you look back on your life and go if only i'd done a bit more if only i'd done a lot more i could have brought more of my family into the kingdom i could have brought more people into the kingdom you know i've read read through a biography an autobiography of charles finney and and you've read it too elizabeth did that man work like against doctors' uh, you know recommendations? He was. They were saying, Charles, if you can continue to do this, you're going to die. And he says, Well, I'm not going to stop. So he kept on doing it. He he went through the most severe sicknesses, but still pressed on for Jesus Christ. He gave Jesus Christ everything, according to what I can tell from what the documents that he that have been left to us say. He gave everything, he had a whole, whole heart. He was crucified to Christ. 
I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave that it was real to him. That was real to Charles Finney. It wasn't just a quote. It was a life. I think, did I finish that scripture? Yep, I did. All right, next one is 2 Peter 3.10. And I'm, I don't know how much further I'm going to get in this sermon. I wanted to get on the 1 John today because 1 John is really, really mind-blowingly powerful. You think 2 Peter. 2 Peter had some pretty powerful scriptures there, wasn't it? There were some pretty deep scriptures. But 1 John is, you know, unbelievable. 3.10, and it says... And this is another awesome scripture. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Everything in the earth, when Jesus Christ returns, in the day of the Lord, the day the Lord returns, everything on earth will be laid bare and burnt up and destroyed. And then Peter adds, Since... Everything will be destroyed in this way. What kind of people ought you to be? What kind of people ought you to be? If the earth and everything in it is going to be destroyed and laid waste, what kind of people should we be? What should our priorities be? What should we be focused on as important in this life? What things do we emphasize in this life that have no bearing on that. That it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter because it's going to be destroyed. What matters? You know, it says when you get to heaven that um, the precious stones and the, and the, and the gold and, and the silver is going to be maintained because they can go through the fire of judgment. But the hay, stubble and straw and everything that we've spent our time that really doesn't have any bearing on eternity, that's all going to burn up. So we don't want to get to heaven with a whole bunch of goods that just get burnt up and we're like, oh, that's great. Why did I bother carrying that all that way? You know, don't bother carrying this stuff that's going to just get destroyed. What kind of people ought you to be? And then Peter answers his own question. He said this, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed. It's coming. Because if you truly live for God, you'll want Jesus to return. You'll want all this to be over. But, you know, we live in an age and in a city and in, a, in, a, in a, uh, an economy that, you know, we live very well. It's sort of like partial heaven, really, isn't it? Sort of a little bit of heaven we have here. Um, and I think we got it more here than other parts of the world. And we, we get along pretty well. So I don't know of how many of us would actually be praying, Lord, please come. You know, I've even prayed, Lord, please hold back, don't come yet. Only because I want my family to get saved first. I don't, if Jesus came today, man, you know, all my brothers, my brother and my mum and dad and, and their partners and and many of Venus family, they'll be all They'll be all uh, judged and, and thrown away because none of them believe in Jesus. They think we're cuckoo. They love us, but they think we're cuckoo. You know what I mean? 
But it's sad because some of the most, and this is the, this is the interesting thing, and this is where the goodness of people, um, it doesn't, you don't have to be Christian to be a good person. Some of the best people I know aren't Christian. Don't have any faith. And they're beautiful people. Who knows people like that? Gorgeous people, gorgeous. My heart burns for them because I'm thinking, you know, you, and don't try to bring to them you'll be a better person by being a Christian because that's some of this. Your soul is going to get saved. And they'll think, well, God will judge me on my good deeds because I know I'm a good person. You're judged according to your faith in Jesus Christ and who've rejected him or accepted him. That's the judgment. Once you've been judged according to that and you're put on the left or the right of Jesus, then they'll judge you according to your deeds. The Christians will be judged according to what we've done. And that's why there's going to be levels in heaven in the sense of who's closer to Jesus. I'm sure Paul's right up there with him and John's leaning against his chest. But there'll be many of us that'll be at a distance. doesn't mean Jesus won't come and say hello. But we won't have, we'll have a, a lesser relationship than the others. But we'll still, the relationship will be mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Because everything in heaven is amplified. Everything, if, if you've got a little bit of a relationship here, you'll have a much greater relationship in heaven with Jesus. You know what I mean? It just exponentially multiplies when you get to heaven. So it's wonderful. So just the key is make sure you get into heaven. Don't miss out. So I'll just finish this scripture so we can um, start wrapping it up. 2 Peter three ten to 14. So what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live ho holy and godly lives as you look forward to his coming, uh, to the day of God and speed, it's coming. The day will bring about, this day that is coming, will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. That's what we're looking forward to, a new heaven. Who looks forward to that? Yeah, who's hanging out for that? You know when this body starts giving up? That's when you start hanging out even more. Because when you're riddled with pain, you know, you just want out. It's like, Lord, take me now. You know? But while we're healthy, you know, live, you know, this is not to say we shouldn't, we shouldn't um, live with all our might to the best of our ability to live for Christ while on earth. Because we should. And that's what, when you're feeling healthy, it's so that you can be a better servant of Jesus Christ. Amen. But we have that assurance of faith that if we uh, have to leave this life suddenly or through sickness, that we're going to be welcomed into an eternal kingdom. And that's a beautiful assurance. You know, I, I don't know of a better one. Do you know any other religion that gives such a beautiful assurance for, for your faith? You know? I just think of some of the religions around that, that don't have, like um, in, in Buddhism, it's nirvana. What's nirvana? It's becoming like, you know, you just sort of become one with the universe. So you sort of dissipate into the universe, become like a mist. Off you go. That's nirvana. And you try to enter nirvana on earth, but no one ever sends, tends to get there. And Hindus, they've got the bad end of the deal. 
they've got to go back, become, if they didn't live a very good life, they'll become, you know, like a, a cockroach or something, or, or they might become a beggar in the street, someone who's maimed or a blind person. Cause, so that's why they didn't have, in Hinduism, um, they didn't have compassion on the sick. In India, when the Christians first got there, they didn't have compassion. They'd just treat them like refuse because it was just karma. It was just, well, you lived a bad life. That's why you're blind. So they didn't have hospitals before the Christians went to India. So the Christians get there, and of course, these what they call lower castes, C-A-S-T-E, these lower castes were all the refuse of society. And the Christian embraced them. The Christians would, you know, clean their wounds and they would help them. You know, if they were blind, they would walk with them and help them around the streets and so on. And so could you imagine how well these, these people received Jesus Christ? There was an incredible revival through those early periods with William Carey and so on. Incredible revivals, right up to John Hyde. He was in, in the Silcott revival and, and incredible um, Moves of the Spirit occurred. He, he, he started praying for one soul a day and he started to get it. Then he started praying for two. started to get it. Then he started praying for four and he started to get them. You know, his church was filling up fast. But there, it was a powerful move of the Spirit that occurred and hospitals were built and the care facilities for these people. So their, their faith led them to be uncompassionate. So it, it, just by the very nature of the faith, it proves to me that it's not a good faith. You know, and then you get um, uh, some atheist philosophies stuff. Uh, like I've, I've got a, a student who's an atheist and he tells me what he believes. And he, I, I won't go into the details of it, but by the time he'd finished his discourse, I said to him, so what's stopping you from committing suicide? Pretty hard thing to say to someone. And he suffers from depression. And he goes nothing i said well of course you can your philosophy is is suicidal i said and and he considers himself a philosopher in a, in a to a degree and i said well shouldn't you weigh a philosophy according to how good it is to your life even if it's not a christian philosophy shouldn't it serve you shouldn't it make your life better or should a philosophy make you miserable I said, so you should be weighing this philosophy very carefully because it's making your life a misery. You're depressed all the time. Um, you don't want to live. And even though I said that, he couldn't get past that, you know, because atheism is strong. He says, well, just because it's, whether it's true, um, whether you think it's true or not because of that, if it's true, then I can't deny it. I have to accept it as my truth. And I'm... Um, you know, I feel so sad that he has to live under that. He has to live under that self-imposed burden. Because just as well as he accepted that philosophy, he could have accepted another one which made him a happy person. You know, there's plenty of good, happy philosophies in life. I think Christianity is the best because it's sober. What I mean by that, it's not just all good, 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 good. There's also a another side that we have to know about so that it keeps us walking within these parameters that so we don't do what we want, as the Scripture says. We've got to know about hell to make us walk a holy life. Amen? So if someone comes and teaches you that grace allows you to live a sinful life, which they don't say it in those very words, but that's what it implies, then 
you've got nothing to keep you on the path of life. It's got, you would not walk a holy life. And according to Scripture, you're in jeopardy. You're in jeopardy. You've got to walk that holy life. Amen? Yeah. So I think Christianity and the philosophy of Christianity is second to none. There's not none better, especially the hope. The hope of Christianity. Oh, no greater hope. Amen. All right, I won't, I won't continue because if I turn, the next screen, turn to the next screen, we'll be here for another hour. But I hope you've enjoyed what we've talked about or at least embraced. Lord, I just uh, thank you that you've helped me to minister this sermon today and I thank you for these wonderful people for hearing me out and, um, and coming today to sit under this teaching. And I pray that no one will go away from here discouraged, but everyone will walk, come, come away um, reflecting uh, more soberly on their life and that it will cause them to live according to the way that you will us to live. That everyone here will become closer to you, walk a better life in you, um, become more productive and fruitful in, in their Christian walk. That it won't be just their Sunday morning thing that they do once a week, but it'll become something that Im they uh, embrace their whole or pour their whole life into as best they can. And I pray according to our time restraints in this life as well. But Lord, I just pray your blessing on everyone here. And those that aren't here this morning, I pray that you're with them. And uh, may your spirit just m keep uh, uh, guiding us every single day. Help us to live the right life the Christian life, the way we were meant to live, the way that the apostles of old lived. I pray that you continue to give us these revelations so that we can get stronger and stronger in our walk. And I pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Just bless our time of fellowship now. Be with us and uh, may it be a wonderful time of fellowship and bless our week ahead. Protect us um, and keep us strong and healthy so that we can see each other again next week. And I pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.